0: I would like to welcome to our pulpit this morning, Reverend Carol Haig. Carol is Minister Emerita of Religious Education from the Summit Unitarian Universalist Congregation, an advocate for our universalist heritage, especially through our UU Camp and Conference Center at Mary Grove, and is a dear friend of mine, and so I'd like to welcome her to our pulpit this morning.
1: I invite you into a spirit of prayer and meditation. In this community of memory and hope, we hold in our hearts the joys and sorrows members of this community have brought in with them today, whether they be personal, family, or events in the larger world. We hold in our hearts, especially, those who are suffering from the government shutdown right now and those in other parts of the world who are suffering from natural disasters. In this sacred space and in shared silence, may we hold prayers and meditations of our hearts. Amen.
0: Our first reading is from a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Which was delivered by American preacher Jonathan Edwards on July 8, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment, they deserve to be cast into hell. Justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell, and the reason why they don't go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them as angry as he is with many of those miserable creatures that he is now tormenting in hell, and do there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth, yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, than than it may be are at ease and quiet, than he is with many of those that are now in the flames of hell." The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation don't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened her mouth under them. Our second reading is a quote from John Murray, speaking in 1770 from Charles Howe's book, The Larger Faith, A Short History of American Universalism. Go out into the highways and byways of America, your new country. Give the people blanketed with the decaying and crumbling Calvinism something of your new vision. You may possess only a small light, but uncover it, let it shine. Use it in order to bring more light and understanding to the hearts and minds of men. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into their theological despair, but preach the kindness and everlasting love of God.
1: I'd like to say what a delight it is to be here in this pulpit with you today, and I promise not three and a half hours, honest engine. (laughs) Uh, Charlie and Judy have long been colleagues of mine, and I love and respect them enormously, and I see uh, Jackie sitting in the uh, Pews here, so what, what a delight to be here among, among friends. And this is a very slippery pulpit, so I'm going to have to watch out that I don't lose all my papers on the floor. Um, I'd like to share an image with you. Many, many years ago, soon after graduating from college, I dated a young British Episcopal priest named Martin. We talked a great deal about religion and faith and God. I had grown up as an Episcopalian with strong ethics and a very shaky, superficial theology, and it was fascinating to have conversations with someone so steeped in theology. On one occasion, Martin shared an image that has informed my faith ever since. He described a great globe, and inside this globe was all the mystery and wonder and light and whatever people had ever understood about God inside the globe. And over time, human beings had cut windows into the outside to try to look in. And there was a Hindu window that had its special cultural shape and a Buddhist window and a Christian window and a Jewish window and a Baptist and Presbyterian and, and every kind of religious Sikh, every kind of religious uh, experience you could imagine. And everybody was looking through the windows that they had created into this wonder, this mystery that we call God. Hold that, that image. A lot happened since then. I um, grew up a little bit. I um, met a man named Carl Haig. I changed from being an Episcopalian and joined the then Unitarian Church in Princeton and um, had children and eventually went into the ministry. So a lot of things happened uh, between then and the next event I'd like story I'd like to tell you. In 2009 my husband Carl and I attended a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the decision in Syracuse New York in 1959 to establish a union between the Universalist Association Universalists and the Unitarians. In 61 The Unitarian Universalist Association was officially formed, and the denomination Unitarian Universalism was born. I have long been intrigued by the fact that the word order of the resulting merger gave Universalists the noun. The Unitarians were relegated to adjective. Why, then, do we so often refer to ourselves as Unitarians? My thesis for this morning is that we are truly universalists and that love, the central message of universalism, is what we have to offer to the 21st century. Let us claim this heritage. As I mentioned, my first Unitarian Universalist church was actually the Unitarian Church in Princeton. It was full of energy, commitment to social justice, intellectual exploration, and a deeply humanist understanding of life. After over 25 years of active involvement as a member there, I arrived at the decision to enter the ministry and join the staff of the Unitarian Church in Summit. It was the parish minister there, Dave Bumbaugh, who provided my introduction to universalism. Dave instituted the unison affirmation that we spoke this morning, love is the doctrine of this church. Love is at the heart of this affirmation. Love is the basis for questing service, community, and peace. God is love is the central message of universalism. This, plus my deep involvement with Murray Grove, the birthplace of universalism in this country, has deepened and enriched my belief in the power of the universalist message. So where did the universalists come from, and why does it matter to us today? Many of the British colonies of America had been formed by groups of people seeking a place to practice their faith free from infringements by European governments and corrupt ecclesiastical bodies. In the early part of the 18th century, there was a movement known as the Great Awakening in 1730 to 1755. This was a return to religious fervor and a powerful call for people to cease their foolish ways and return to a very strict Calvinism. Reverend Jonathan Edwards, whose words you just heard, um, the... uh, is a typical sermon of the Great Awakening, emphasizing the widely held belief that hell is a real and functional place. Edwards hoped that the imagery and message of his sermon would awaken his audience to the horrific reality that he argued awaited them should they continue without Christ. Edwards says that he, it is the will of God that keeps wicked men from the depths of hell. This act of restraint has given humanity a chance to change their ways and return to Christ. Religious revivalism was strong, and the fear of God was preached in many, many pulpits. But there was a counter reaction, and some thinkers and preachers offered a different view that the God of the Scriptures was a kinder, gentler God. One example was James Relly in England where John Murray became a convert to universalism. James Relly wrote a treatise called Union. In this, Relly affirmed that Jesus Christ had so thoroughly identified himself with humankind that he became completely tainted with humanity's sins, and that through his death on the cross, he had atoned for both his own sins and the sins of all humankind, past, present, and future. I told the wonderful miracle story of universalism's arrival on the shores of North America in our own true miracle story. It's one one we should claim because we don't have many miracle stories to tell. A miracle made it possible for John Murray to preach universal salvation in that little chapel that Thomas Potter had built. And this miracle allowed him to renew and reclaim his own faith. That was 1770, six years before our Declaration of Independence. John Murray was not the first or only proponent of universal salvation. Contemporaries on this continent expressing universalist understandings included George de Beneville, L. Hannan Winchester, um, Benjamin Rush, who's a signer of our Declaration of Independence. So the belief in universal salvation, so simply and passionately preached by John Murray, fell on eagerly awaiting ears. With itinerant preachers roaming the settled east coast and into the hinterlands of western Pennsylvania and even Ohio, the universalist gospel spread rapidly. It leavened the rigid Calvinism of the day and changed the expression of Protestant Christianity in the New World. At one time in the 19th century, universalism was the sixth largest denomination in the United States. So that was a dash through universalist history, but why does it matter to us today? The startling message of the early universalists was inclusion, radical inclusion. Everyone was to receive the blessing of salvation. I had thought there was not a lot of hellfire and damnation being preached in this country today until a recent conversation with an acquaintance who left his fundamentalist roots where damnation indeed was preached, and he became a Christian universalist. In addition to exclusive religious teaching and practice, exclusion is in full force in more secular ways as well. Boundaries of who is accepted and who is not are built into the walls erected to prevent illegal immigration. The exclusion of those who are different is heard in the red rhetoric of love-it-or-leave-it nationalism. It is alive in hate crimes, attacks and murders, and frightening in the continued drone of racism and homophobia and transphobia. I believe the need for the gospel of inclusion is critical in our time and preachers of universalism, have risen to the need. Two whom I would like to lift up are Bill Schultz, former president of the UUA, and Forrest Church, widely published theological writer. In a book called We Are Unitarian Underlined Universalists, Finding Time and Other Delicacies, Bill Schultz writes this, Proud though we can be of this universalist history, however, It alone does not account for why I, who was raised a Unitarian and who reveres my Unitarian heritage too, so treasure the fact that universalism is now part of who I am religiously. Indeed, what we gather from our universalist roots may be even more germane to today's world than our Unitarian traditions. Schultz goes on to describe four reasons for his universalist identity. First, universalism had a gospel, a doctrine, a core belief around which its members rallied. While rarely putting that doctrine into creedal form, universalism was unafraid to proclaim that it had some good news, which the world needed desperately. Second reason, universalism imaged God as gentle and conciliatory rather than violent and retributive. If, as seems most likely, our images of divinity affect how we behave in the world, universalism's conviction of God's beneficence has much to recommend it. And three, universalism affirmed religious experience and feeling. Religion was not just something to think or talk about. It was something to be held deep inside the heart and something to be shouted from the rooftops. And fourth, universalism taught a global consciousness long before it was fashionable. It called us to transcend national loyalties in the interests of the human spirit. Schultz's words really speak to me personally. As Unitarian Universalists, We do have good news to proclaim that every person on the planet is worthy of our respect and of our care, that how we live our lives during our four score and ten or whatever time we're given matters more than doctrines and creeds, and that we humans are but one thread in the amazing, awesome web of creation. As Unitarian Universalists, we believe it matters that the ultimate universal mystery that we often call the spirit of life, of life and of love, is gentle and caring, not vengeful and partisan. As Unitarian Universalists, we have come to value the spirit, the heart and emotions we bring to our search for truth and meaning as much as the intellect. We affirm the experience of transcendent wonder and awe as primary religious texts. And as Unitarian Universalists, we lift up the interconnection of all existence above denominational claims and national loyalties. I like Schultz's writings. One of our great lights went out when Reverend Forrest Church died. In the last year of his life, his cancer in remission, Forrest penned a final summation of his lifetime as a liberal theologian in a book called The Cathedral of the World, A Universalist Theology. There he writes that the guiding principles of this country, the United States, are universal. E pluribus unum, he states, is a universalist epiphany, the American creed was, the, was basic to this country's formation, was a faith in the people to combine for the common good. One chapter in Farr's book is the sermon he preached in 1987 at the Coalition for Peace Action annual conference in Princeton, entitled The Commonwealth of God. Speaking about the need for humanity to work together to prevent nuclear holocaust, he said, And I quote, given human nature and history, to propose a relational, cooperative, and fraternal kinship-based ethic fashioned to strengthen the interdependent web of being may seem idealistic and naive. In fact, it is desperately realistic. Interrelatedness is not simply a theological concept. It is a new truth. He's right. We live in a global village, a global economy, a global ecology, and we are just beginning to understand the implications. Whether it is the threat of a virus such as H1N1 or a global financial crisis or global warming or extinction of species, the concerns are universal, and the solutions must be also. In a chapter titled Universalism for the 21st Century, Church writes, and I quote, by definition, universalism is not the province of any one sect. Humility and awe, two essential handmaidens for a heartfelt universalism, lie at the root of all direct human experience of the holy. And as a closing image, Church offers us a magnificent metaphor the cathedral of the world. Though the human pilgrimage may wind down a million paths, he writes, all roads alike lead to the grave. In the temple of universalism, two great pillars, awe and humility, flank the doors. The doors themselves are birth and death. In the cathedral of the world, the same light shines through all our windows, but each window is different. The windows modify the light, refracting it in various patterns that suggest discrete meanings. The different windows modify the one light, such as Christian universalism, Jewish universalism, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu universalism, and for us, Unitarian Universalism. The spirit of love is the light, the common mystery, the universal principle linking all humans on the planet. I suddenly realized a while ago the reverse of the sphere image that I started with. With God, the mystery in the sphere was inside. And in Church's image, God, the mystery is outside. It's the light coming in. Many windows for letting in the light. I invite us to claim our universalist heritage. I invite us to affirm that our contemporary social justice, civil rights proclamation, standing on the side of love, grows out of our universalist roots I invite us to reach out to those of other faiths for the universalist understandings that connect us beyond creedal differences. Forrest wrote, together, the openness of liberal religion coupled with the encompassing theology of universalism provides a legacy sufficient to the challenge of a new age. The challenge of this new age awaits us. Let us claim our universalist heritage to strengthen us to meet that challenge. Blessed be and amen. Now is the accepted time, not tomorrow, not some more convenient season. It is today that our best work can be done and not some future day or future year. It is today that we fit ourselves for the greater usefulness of tomorrow. Today is the seed time. Now are the hours of work, and tomorrow comes the harvest and the playtime. And so for a benediction, um, you're sort of spread out, but if there's somebody near you, grab a hand. Behind All Our Differences... Beneath all our diversity, there is a unity that makes us one and binds us forever together, in spite of time and death and the space between the stars. Blessed be and amen.